0: Hello everyone, it's Mark Goodacre here. Welcome to the NT part of the podcast all about the New Testament and Christian origins. This is the fifth of our extended episodes. It deals with the passion narrative in Mark's Gospel, and it was recorded at a class that I gave at Duke University in March of 2010. Is that on now? Is it really? How can you tell? Oh... That's brilliant. The sort of the ancient art of listening to the volume of something to to find out if it's... Oh, okay. So it was not all that time. Hey, do you think that the other day when I thought I wasn't recording it and I was just switching it off for the um, kind of libelous bits, actually all I recorded was the libelous bits. That'd be funny, wouldn't it? (laughs) Okay. um, Right. So Mark's gospel, passion narrative. Now, We've spent two classes on Mark's gospel, and one of the things that I hope has come through so far in Mark's gospel is that it is an enigmatic gospel. It's secret, bizarre kind of gospel. And lots of the time, when you want greater explication or greater explanation, you just get silence, and it stops. And indeed, the entire gospel is like that, because just when you think that you're going to get some sort of explanation of everything that's happened, the gospel ends and we'll come to that in a bit more detail towards the end. So Mark's gospel, an enigmatic kind of gospel. Now, one of the things that I've suggested is key to understanding Mark, is that it's a gospel of Christ crucified. It's the gospel of the suffering Son of God. And in that, what it's doing, it's encapsulating something very fundamental and basic <coughs> that was around in early Christianity. Because already in the Apostle Paul's preaching, and the Apostle Paul, of course, predates the writing of the Gospels according to virtually every New Testament scholar. In Paul's writing, he talks about the idea of Christ crucified as a stumbling block, a scandalon in Greek for Jews. And that seems to be, I think, at the heart of the way that Mark presents his entire Gospel because he sees the disciples have got no problem with the idea of Jesus being the Messiah once they've worked it out, but they've got a real problem with the idea that a messiah, an anointed one, someone that God's specially chosen, could be submitted to this appalling death by crucifixion. Why is that such a big deal? Well, let's have a little look. Let's remind ourselves what is involved in crucifixion. Those of you that have done the Historical Jesus course, I've got just a handful in this class, I know, but not that many. But uh, those who have done the Historical Jesus course, we had a particularly grisly Session where we looked at some ancient materials on crucifixion, and this is just a crazy of some of those materials in the historical Jesus course. And if you want to take, I'm running that next spring. Um, so if you if you want to take that course, we'll, you'll get the full grizzly details there, including <coughs> the most horrific picture, the only bit of archaeological evidence we have of crucifixion in antiquity, where there's a uh, there's a Basically, they discovered a heel bone of a guy that had been crucified, and there's a nail just going right through it. It's really, really horrendous to look at. It's one of those moments where the 2,000 years that separate you Suddenly, in that moment, looking at that uh, nail going through the heel bone, just make it present to you in a really horrendous way. Um, so, there'll be that grisly thing to look forward to for anybody that uh, wants to do the historical Jesus course in case I haven't just put you off it. It's not all like that. It's not all about torture and nastiness. Although, about 50% of it is. Um, so, Crucifixion background, and apart from that bit of archaeological evidence, you also have to look at some ancient texts on it. One of the problems about trying to find ancient texts about crucifixion is that it was so horrific to the kind of elite writers that produced the text that we have that they preferred not to address it, they preferred not to talk about it. They didn't give graphic descriptions of it because people knew what it looked like. And the whole point of crucifixion was it was there to terrorise the populace into obedience, into doing what you wanted. If you've got a society that doesn't have democracy, what's the greatest threat? The greatest threat is from the mob. How do you control the mob? One of the ways that the Roman Empire controlled unwieldy mobs was you crucify people who were brigands, who were runaway slaves, and so on, in order to stop them from this course of action. So anyway, here's a little... um, Here's a little bit from Seneca, but you do have a few references to crucifixion, which just help you to get a feeling for it. The reason I like to do this is that, I don't know about you, but crucifixion is one of those terms that has become a kind of religious term, hasn't it? It's stopped being a historical term. It's been something, if you say crucified, and do one of those word association things, you know, where you say one word and you have to say another one quickly, loads of people would say Christ, Jesus, straight away, wouldn't they? Crucifixion, Jesus, yeah? Yeah because that's how people think about crucifixion. But in the ancient world, when you talk about crucifixion, they didn't go, oh, that's the thing that happened to Jesus. It? You know, it's, That's that horrible, grisly punishment is, is what they would think. Anyway, so here's Seneca talking about crucifixion. Can anyone be found who would prefer wasting away in pain? I should just give you the context. He's, Seneca says, arguing against someone that says that um, you should never, it, that suicide is the lowest form of, of death, suicide is the most awful thing that you can have. And Seneca is arguing against this by saying, well, of course it's not, because dying by crucifixion is about a million times worse. And then to try and prove his rhetorical point, he goes into how horrible crucifixion is. So he says, can anyone be found who would prefer wasting away in pain, dying limb by limb, or letting out his life drop by drop, rather than expiring once for all? Can any man be found willing to be fastened to the accursed tree, long, sickly, already deformed, swelling with ugly wheels on shoulders and chest, and drawing the breath of life amid long, drawn-out agony? He would have many excuses for dying even before mounting the cross." It's an amazing, amazing passage and just brings home something of the horror of imagining someone in the ancient world being tortured to death. There are still people, of course, in the contemporary world that, um, you know, I'm not saying that you know it's only the ancient world had a monopoly on cruelty. And in fact, one of the things I always say in these contexts is that Whenever I study crucifixion, whenever I look at torture in the ancient world, I always think about the contemporary world. And one of the reasons—the only time I will ever do politics in classes, by the way—one um, of the reasons I'm a member, uh, one of the reasons I'm a member of Amnesty International is because there is still cruelty and evil doing of this kind. But that's the only bit of politics I shall do. Um, but the executioner, the veiling of the head, Cicero says. And the very word cross should be far removed, not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes and his ears. For it is not only the actual occurrence of these things, or the endurance of them, but liability to them, the expectation, indeed, the very mention of them, that is unworthy of a Roman citizen and a free man. Cicero is writing there about a person. What's that? Do you remember the name of the guy? The guy that gets crucified in Italy on the White Cross. I've forgotten his name. Um, fascinating um, case where... Cicero is absolutely appalled because a Roman citizen has been crucified, and he's been crucified on a big white cross so that everybody can see, uh, and on top of a big hill so everyone can see it for miles around. And Cicero is so incensed, not because a human being has been crucified. He thought that was entirely right, that certain classes of people should be crucified. But for him, the idea a Roman citizen should be crucified was an absolute horror and outrage to him. It's another interesting insight into the kind of ancient mentality that they can separate out so clearly in their minds something that they regard as appropriate for a certain class of person and something that's not appropriate for another. Amazing piece. But again, it gives you a feel for just how horrific the idea of crucifixion is. And something from a contemporary author, a, a much underrated book, which I rather like. I, don't, I think I'm the only person in the whole world that's read it. And therefore, I'm, it, I always like to mention it when I'm writing about this topic. I have a couple of articles on crucifixion and the passion narrative and Mark's gospel. And gosh, I'm just, I was going to say they're available online. Uh, one of them isn't, but one of them is. Um, if you would like to read them, you're welcome to look at them. And uh, this is how... What's the guy's name? I've forgotten. Gaia, that's it. Or Gaia. Let's call him Douglas Gaia. Crucifixion is an ideal expression of the anomalous frightful, in accordance with ancient evidence about types of death and the destinies of those killed violently. It is terrifying, ghastly, and laden with uncertainty. It is a violent and abrupt end of mortal life, and it remains this volatile problem for the ancient audience of the Gospels. The tenacity of this problem for early Christianity is not to be underestimated in the Gospels. I've added in the Gospels, haven't I? It's not to be underestimated, full stop. In the light of this, how can Mark write a plausible, compelling narrative of the crucifixion? Now, because we don't think about crucifixion very much and what the reality of crucifixion is, we easily underestimate just how difficult Mark's task is. Because let's think about it. Let's say that we're right... I say we, I mean me and people like me, and I know lots of you because I've already seen lots of midterms that say, I think Mark and Priority is great, so that's good. So I can say we, actually, can't I? Um, Let's say that we are right that Mark is the first gospel. If Mark is the first gospel, then Mark is the first person that we know of to have sat down if he did sit down to write it, he could have stood up to write it, because he, fi- he, he didn't write it physically himself. He was pacing around a room doing it. He was a scribe sitting there doing the actual physical writing, I think. Mark was just doing like I was. Um, so Mark is the first person who sets his mind to the task of writing a gospel. Now, as soon as you're actually telling a narrative of these events, trying to write a kind of ancient biography, if that's what the gospel is, you've got a real challenge on your plate, haven't you? Because it's not so easy telling a narrative of this stuff as it is just doing a kind of sermon on it. Now, Paul talked about crucifixion a lot. Paul is our earliest evidence for the spread of Christianity, and his letters are our earliest Christian documents. We're going to look at them in a few weeks' time. But when Paul talks about crucifixion. It's just in a line or two in his letters. Maybe in his preaching he did tell a little bit more about it. It's difficult to know exactly. But Mark is the one who actually sits down or stands up or walks around, whatever he does, sets his mind to producing a narrative of the crucifixion. Now, if you've got that conviction that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is God's special chosen one, anointed to do God's task, How do you tell a story of this horrible death by crucifixion and make it plausible at the same time as making it in some way edifying? If the gospels are a kind of propaganda, if they are a sort of, excuse me, if they are a kind of preaching in the name of this person that they're trying to persuade people about, then you've got to try and produce something more than just a horrible, hideous account of someone dying, right? I don't think people sufficiently appreciate how difficult this task was. In one of these articles I wrote about the crucifixion, uh, published in 2006, I said that Mark is the first person, the first ancient writer ever that we know of, to have tried to tell the story of someone dying by a crucifixion. And I think that's right. Yeah. Am I wrong? You're wrong. You said you're wrong. Hero. I had to say hero, didn't I? Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, I, originally, I said man, and then I realized that actually there are accounts of people dying by crucifixion. So I had to say hero. Yeah. The first account. <laughs> oh, Thank you for that reminder. Um, see, I would get away with murder if um, people like Stephen and Ken were here, wouldn't I? Um, even when they're not putting helpful little nuggets in like that, um, they're giving me looks, and that helps. Hey, who's going to be there for you on Wednesday doing that? Ken, you can do that, yeah? (laughs) So if Ken isn't heckling Stephen on Wednesday, then some of you will have to do it, yeah? Um, Okay, so I think that Mark was the first person to do this. Okay, so how did he go about doing it? Right, the darkness of Mark's passion narrative is one of the ways of doing it. The tone that he set himself, the tone he set himself was A really dark one, because Mark, I think, entirely rightly thinks, I can't just tell this as a glorious story of, you know, kind of angels surrounding him and, you know, kind of fireworks and, you know, dancing and happiness and all the rest of it. He knows that that would not really be in the slightest bit plausible to any of his heroes. So he has to set the thing, or he chooses to set the thing, in a very dark way. So have a look at some of the things in the Passion Narrative. The silence of the victim. In Mark's Jesus, hardly speaks on the cross. He says one agonized thing right at the end, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he utters a loud cry, but there's nothing else in there. He dies on his own. There's two people with him uh, on Crosses, but they, what happens, what do they do, the two men that are crucified with him? They revile him, yeah, they, they blaspheme him, they insult him, right?